welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com. And on the other line, it's my colleague and my co-host, Michael Batflip Bauman. Hi, Michael. Is that new? Yep, that's new. We're just debuting that right now. All right, cool. I'm just mm-hmm. all, after, you know, middle school, I'm always a little nervous around new nicknames, <laughs> but. <laughs> yeah, Pete McCannon thinks the new nickname I just gave you is very unprofessional. Yeah. So later in this episode, we are going to talk to not one, but two dermatologists, dueling dermatologists. And we were inspired by Rich Hill's ongoing, seemingly unsolvable blister issues. So we're going to talk to them about that. First, we're going to talk to Dr. John Olrud, the father of my first ever favorite player, John Olrud. And we're also going to talk to Dr. Charles Crutchfield, who's the team dermatologist for the Twins and the Wild and the Vikings and the Timberwolves and the state of Minnesota. (laughs) Yes, basically. We're going to talk to him about blisters, but we found a, a bunch of other interesting things to talk about, including the applications of Botox with baseball players, which is something I didn't know about before. But before that, we've got a few topics to banter about. Yeah. Where do you want to begin? Well, I just want to say sh- yeah. to my utter shock, despite having about three days lead time with this topic, I have failed to come up with one satisfactory skin pun. So I know been, you promised. <laughs> yeah, I promised and I can't deliver. So you've been <laughs> you've been saved. So let's let's do the, the first place teams, last place teams thing. Mm, okay. So we want to know which group we've got, either the current first place teams or the current last place teams. And this is a way of pointing out the absurdity of anything that happens in the first 10 days or so of the season. So this is good. Good topic to cover, you know, after I spent all day yesterday writing about the importance of what happens in the first 10 days of the season. So I'm glad you're with me on that. Yes, very much so. So we looked at the current first place teams, and this will be different by the time you're hearing this probably, but the point should hold. So right now we've got Orioles, Twins, Angels, Nationals, Reds, and Diamondbacks in first place, and we settled ties with run differential. And then in the last place group, we've got Blue Jays, Royals, Mariners, Braves, Cardinals, and Giants. And the question is, which of these groups will have more cumulative wins at the end of the season, the group that's currently in first place or the group that's currently in last place? Uh, I say particularly if you're spotting me what's already in the bank, I'm going to take mm-hmm. the first place teams. Okay. So I feel like I, I like Toronto a little better than Baltimore. I like Minnesota a little better in KC. I think uh, Seattle a little more than LA, but that one's close. I think Washington is going to be 20 games up on Atlanta by the end of the season, if not more. Yeah, at, at least. Yeah. Uh, I think the Cardinals will make most of that back over the Reds, although there's mm-hmm. a possibility that the Cardinals are secretly trash. Possibly. And I'm more open to that than Braves being good or the Nationals being bad. And I think the Giants make a little bit up on the, the Diamondbacks, but I think that's going to be close too. So just on the strength of the Nationals and the strength that you've given me, I don't know, something like 25 games already, I'm going to mm-hmm. take the first place teams. But yeah, you cheated well... and did math. So I'm interested <laughs> to hear what you came up with. Although before I did the math, I formed my own impression. Yeah, using the the odd-numbered questions in the back of the book just to check your work. (laughs) Yes, right. If I am sticking to my guns here and saying that the first week or so of the season doesn't mean all that much, and of course it can, these wins and losses matter and they count just as much as any other, but... Right now, the first place group has one team that I picked to make the playoffs, the Nationals, and the last place group has four teams that I picked to make the playoffs, and lots of wildcard teams. I think the Cardinals, Giants, 
Mariners and Blue Jays were my four wildcard picks, and I didn't feel supremely confident about any of them except maybe the Giants, I thought, were a decent bet. But these were all kind of toss-ups, but still, I went with them. So I think I'm sticking to what I would have said 10 days ago, and I'm taking this last-place group, and I'm open to the idea that maybe these teams are actually worse than I thought in some cases or better than I thought in some cases – But, I mean, I'm not going to read too much into the Twins starting fast or the Reds starting fast, although the Reds have been kind of fun and interesting in certain ways. I was going to say the opposite. I was going to say the Twins (laughs) have been fun and interesting and the Reds are not. The Reds have Michael Lorenzen, who comes in in the third inning now in high leverage situations and also pinch hits. He's awesome. Yeah, but Cal State Froland had that for three years. (laughs) He never showed a lick of interest in them. So (laughs) That is absolutely true. So I think I'm going with the current last place teams. And unsurprisingly, probably that is sort of what the projections would say, since my preseason predictions were largely in line with the projections. So it's fairly close. If you look at the preseason projections, the current last place teams were projected to win 490 games combined. The current first place teams were projected to win 476, so 14 fewer. And if you look at the updated projections, which take into account what has happened thus far, The last place group still has a lead, but it's a two-game lead now, 479 to 477. So this is essentially a toss-up, but I'm going to be consistent and stick with what I would have said because I just haven't seen enough to sway me so far. Okay. Yeah, I think you're doing this to make a point, and I think you're going to be wrong. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Moving on to crickets, which is we're no stranger to crickets on the podcast when I make a joke and you know sell it. But Mm -hmm. uh, we had actual crickets in baseball at Safeco Field where they're selling... I believe it's toasted grasshoppers mm-hmm. is the uh, the dish that they're selling. And uh, last night on the Root Sports broadcast uh, in Houston, the broadcast team of Todd Callis, Julia Morales. Well, Todd and Julia had him and Jeff Blum, longtime big league utility man turned mm-hmm. Astros color commentator, was so freaked out he refused to, to sample the crickets. And yes. I say, so I've been at a table with toasted grasshoppers before and tried to psych myself up. It, you know, it was at a mezcaleria, so I was, you know, mm-hmm. drinking mezcal. And you think if, if there's any if there's any point in time where you're going to eat bugs, it's when you're drinking mezcal. And I couldn't bring myself to do it. So yeah. I, you know, I respect the trepidation. But if you go, I would recommend everybody go back and watch the top of the sixth and last in uh, Wednesday night's Astros Mariners game because not only did they eat crickets on the air, it sparked the decisive rally. So this was mm-hmm. this turned into a whole thing, and they're talking. I'm sure this will be an inside joke with the Astros the the rest of the season. So yeah, I really like that broadcast crew. By the way, I think it's a really underrated crew that doesn't get as much shine as it deserves because nobody cares about the Astros. Didn't the uh, the Royals had a rally mantis last year, right? But it I think it died. They didn't eat it though. It was just a a companion that they kept with them. I'm not a huge fan of insects, either as edible objects or just as companions. So I probably wouldn't be enthusiastic about trying the crickets, but I probably wouldn't be less likely 
to get the crickets than I would any other ballpark food because I have a, a pretty strong standing policy of not buying ballpark food. Is it not buying ballpark food or not paying yes. for ballpark food? Well, it's not because of any food snobbery because I definitely don't have any of that and there's lots of fancy food at ballparks anyway these days, but it's more just that it's so expensive and yeah. also I don't want to get up and wait online. So I, I almost never buy ballpark food if i'm in the press box maybe i'll get press box food but otherwise no i'll eat before i go or i'll try to smuggle something in or i'll go hungry until the game is over but if i had to choose something probably wouldn't choose the crickets and this just seems like the natural evolution of the crazy ballpark food craze where usually it's something that will kill you very quickly if you were to eat it regularly i don't know how crickets are for you nutritionally and how they Apparently were prepared exactly this was yeah the, i'm sure uh, the, they talked about this on the broadcast last week. <laughs> yeah i mean crickets probably better for you than any of those like giant sandwiches made out of bacon that have bacon between the bacon or anything like that but still not high on my list okay all right also from Wednesday night's action, the Mets 14-4 win over the Phillies. Yona Cespedes hit three home runs. Uh, the Mets is in total, I believe, hit 57 home runs off Adam Morgan during that <laughs> game. And uh, Phillies fans, by the by game's end, were doing the wave. And Mets mm. pitcher Noah Syndergaard showing a lot of gumption for a guy whose haircut is trending rapidly towards pickles from Metalocalypse, uh, <laughs> took to Twitter to criticize Phillies fans for doing the wave and was roundly applauded by the, the baseball media and hardcore fans mm-hmm. that we sort of surround ourselves with. And I want to say this is bullshit. Um, <laughs> I think wave snobbery is so ugly. It's it's <laughs> fan behavior policing. It's fake baseball hipsterism, like being really into Vin Scully, like mm-hmm. you do this to prove how into the game you are. Like if you're, you know, you pay a ticket and go to the ballpark and you're not being rude to your neighbors, you can enjoy the game however you want. And you know what? The wave looks cool. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to come out as pro wave to the peril of my own career, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I've said this elsewhere. So apologies to any Lindbergh completists out there. I know there are so many of you, but I am OK with the wave. I agree that it looks cool. And I'm sure that if you were to get the average leverage index of situations where the wave takes place, it would be very low. It's usually blowouts. It's not your nail bite in the playoffs where you're trying to pay attention to every pitch and the fans are doing the wave, there's a very close correlation with how unimportant what is happening on the field is. And it and doesn't what's get less important than a 10-run Phillies-Mets game no. in April. So Right. So what I would say is I have a very live and let live policy when it comes to the wave, wave and let wave. I like that. I just don't care to participate in the wave. And it's not the wave specifically. I'm not a participator at public events in general. Just if there's someone who uh, asks for a volunteer to come up on stage or if there's like interactive theater or something, that's like my worst nightmare. I just want to sit in my seat and appreciate from afar. So if you find me at a baseball game, and this was the case even before I was writing about baseball, I am just sitting quietly in my seat, dispassionately, clinically observing the action, not booing, not cheering. And I don't want to wave either. And so I'm okay with everyone around me waving, but I don't want to be peer pressured into the wave. You sound like you're a lot of fun at weddings, man. (laughs) I don't want to do the woo. I just want to sit there and watch the wave from afar. So I guess I'm striking a middle ground here. I'm not a wave hater. I'm not a wave booster. 
I just sit there and let the wave wash over me. All right. So real quick before we we get into dermatology, uh, Sam Dyson appears to be uh, very rapidly losing his grasp on the closest Mm. role for the Texas Rangers. The Phillies have already made a a change from John Mark Gomez to Joaquin Benoit. So you can't get much worse as a closer in, in four games than Dyson's been. But this just seems like, what could a closer possibly do? I'm asking you, Ben, as someone who probably wouldn't have a, a closer as we <laughs> right, think of, yeah. of it now. What would a closer have to do for you to be confident in him at the beginning of the season and then make a change within 10 days? Yeah, right. I mean, setting aside the whole question of whether it makes sense to anoint one person as the closer, I think... I'd have to question his mental state, I think. I'd have to question whether he has lost confidence to such an extent that you can't trust him in an important spot, although you would think that removing him from the role, if anything, would make the crisis of confidence even worse. So you have to consider that, like if you think he's going to be a big part of your future. You don't necessarily want to abandon him after a few games because then that's always going to be in the back of his head that he has a leash of three appearances or something. And you'd think that wouldn't be a great thing to be thinking about when you're on the mound. So we're a year removed from uh, Sam Dyson inheriting the the closers job right. for the Rangers when yeah. Sean, Sean Tolleson went to pieces and has never been heard from since. Yeah, right. So if it was a toss-up coming into the year and a guy doesn't have a long track record and you were basically just saying, you know, flipping a coin to say who is the closer, then I guess it's okay if you change your mind more quickly, but you wouldn't want to make it a punitive thing. I think you'd have to do it only if you felt that this was the best way to get the guy back in a groove. And for me personally, I'd imagine it would make me feel even worse, but Maybe that's not the case for everyone. It's the manager's job to know how players will respond to this sort of thing. So I suppose I would defer to the manager, but I would wonder and worry that it was just a knee-jerk, reflexive sort of thing and that the manager was overreacting to a small sample. Yeah, I would be inclined to say that too. All right, skin time. All right, we'll be right back with Dr. John E. Olerud. Here at The Ringer, we take pride in bringing you baseball's greatest moments as they happen, and sometimes the greatest moments turn out to be epic meltdowns. Roger Clemens throwing a broken bat at Mike Piazza, the Yankees blowing a 3-0 lead in the 4 ALCS, or Jim Brockmeyer's on-air meltdown on full display in front of millions of listeners. Speaking of Jim, years after his breakdown went viral, he's back from his career low, calling minor league baseball games in IFC's new show Brockmeyer, starring former podcast guest Hank Azaria and Amanda Peet. Catch Brockmeyer every Wednesday night at 10 p.m. on IFC, or catch up on the IFC app or IFC On Demand. So we are joined now by John Olrud, John Olrud Sr., the original John Olrud, who is a professor emeritus at the Dermatology Division of the University of Washington. Hi, John. Good morning. So we were originally curious about blisters and about the applications of dermatology to baseball, but then we started reading up a bit on your career and got curious about that and wanted to ask you just briefly, you were drafted, I think, in the first ever amateur draft, right, in 65? I have a eight spots ahead of Greg Nettles. And then it seems like for the next several years, you sort of balanced baseball and your medical training in a way that not many players do today, maybe wouldn't even be possible today. Could you describe, I guess your original dream was to be a doctor and you just sort of pursued baseball on the side almost? 
Well, I would put it the other way around. My original dream was to be a major league baseball player, uh-huh. uh, but I also loved academics and medicine. And so I tried to go as far as I could with the baseball, and I didn't have the great ability that my son had. And so I, you know, I think I was a, a good minor league player and probably could have been a uh, a major league player, probably not a marquee player, but uh, you know, by the time I had done seven years in the minor leagues and had two kids, uh, I decided that it was time to go medicine full time. And and by that time, I had graduated from medical school. So I would go to medical school for six months, and and then I'd go to spring training and uh, be a baseball player for the next six uh, months. So what was that? that grind like, you know, having never been either a pro ball player or a medical student, but I understand both of them to be extremely stressful, high intensity uh, jobs. So how'd you keep that up so long? Well, you know, it was a nice balance because, you know, baseball is so completely physical and, uh, you know, you can use the mental for certain aspects of baseball, but, you know, it was outdoors and in nice sunny places and it was great. And and my wife was very supportive of me being a baseball player. She enjoyed that part of my life more than being a medical student, which is pretty demanding. And uh, so by the time I'd finished six months of medical school, I was really delighted to be uh, in the baseball environment and, you know, having uh, spring training experience and going somewhere for the summer to play baseball. And so so it uh, the two things were pretty complementary. I, I enjoyed uh, the way I did it. It's just that I it became clear to me that I wasn't uh, in the plans for the organizations that I was with as far as uh you know, they figured I was going to be a doctor and and uh, didn't uh, have uh, long term plans for me. And so uh, it was time to go be a doctor. Yeah. And at the time, it was more common, maybe even typical for players to have offseason jobs because the salaries weren't anything like what they are now. Not that minor leaguers make much now as it is, but were your teams more understanding about your outside of baseball pursuits than maybe they would be today? Was it more common for players to have serious interests uh, outside of baseball career wise? Well, I think, you know, people did have off-season jobs that were minor leaguers. I mean, we really didn't make much money at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I mean, I did wind up finishing medical school without owing anybody any money because of a signing bonus and a fairly small annual salary. But, you know, the point is, I think most minor leaguers uh, had jobs during the Mm off-season. And uh, so they were pretty much okay with that. I mean, there were uh, sometimes situations where, they would have liked to have me go to winter ball or I may have been a candidate for September call-ups and I had to go back to medical school. And so that, I think, uh, to some degree uh, created more of an issue for the baseball people in my uh, sort of career plans than for the medical people who were very supportive of me doing what I was doing. And so I, I felt like I got more support from the people at my medical school than the people, you know, in positions of decision making in baseball. And so we were just reading about a couple instances in which you actually were pressed into service as a, you know, in a medical capacity on a baseball field uh, late in your minor league career. So was that just instinct by then? You know, you see a, a teammate get hurt or something like that, you go and help out or, you know, what was the dynamic like? 
Well, you know, I think it really is, uh, you know, you have something to contribute and, you know, you can help. And a lot of times in an acute situation, uh, it's just trying to get things stabilized while, you know, an ambulance can get there or a medic team. You know, we didn't have 911 in those days the way we do now where people are pretty instantly available. And so, yeah, just trying to stabilize things and just realizing that I had some special abilities that uh, I could contribute while, you know, somebody else could come in and catch for a while. And that was uh, kind of I mean, there were examples, you know, where somebody, uh, you know, had an injury or an illness in the stands or one of my teammates got hit in the cheekbone with a fastball and, you know, things like that that wound up requiring a little medical skill. And I and I had it by that time, at least to the point where I could be useful. Yeah, we're fascinated by two-way players such as the, the Padres Christian Bethancourt this year or the Reds Michael Lorenzen who can hit and pitch. You could have pioneered a sort of two-way backup catcher slash trainer slash team doctor <laughs> kind of role. You might have made yourself valuable that way. Yeah, well, I mean, that uh, I did come back uh, and do sports medicine for a period of time uh, before I really kind of branched off and uh, be, totally went into dermatology because uh, I did internal medicine training as well as sports medicine. And then dermatology became my kind of... Uh, my final career direction where I became an academic dermatologist uh, at a medical school. And, and that's kind of what I've been doing for many years now. So Yeah. Well, so that was what we wanted to do. We wanted to talk to a dermatologist and it just so happened that we found one who was also a baseball player, even better for us. But we were interested specifically because of the Dodgers starter, Rich Hill, who has these ongoing, seemingly chronic blister issues. And of course, this is not necessarily a new thing for pitchers, but it seems to be something that keeps recurring in his case, and clearly the team hasn't found a perfect solution for that problem. And in your experience, I'm sure being a catcher whose hands must have been beat up all the time, knowing what you know now as a dermatologist, I mean, there must be a lot of applications to sports and to baseball specifically. So can you tell us a little bit about how players used to try to take care of their hands and how they do today and, and what the, the risks are? Well, you know, I think um, obviously a player like Rich Hill would have great kind of medical team taking care of him and the right. trainers are very knowledgeable about kind of these practical matters of managing uh, these practical problems. There are some people that are more susceptible to blisters than others, and you know it can be an inherited blistering condition. Uh, sometimes it's bad enough to where you know it would be something that wouldn't permit somebody to become uh, a performer at uh, at his level. Others, you know, uh, may have just more susceptibility to blistering, and you know, simple things like you know taking care of calluses before they get too thick. You know, gymnasts are a great example. When I was doing sports medicine, of people who get you know these incredible calluses on their hands, but they have to be careful about the calluses getting too thick and getting a blister under a callus because that can be sort of a a very uh, dramatic event in their season. And so, 
you know, one of the things that, you know, probably needs to be looked at is, you know, if he does get calluses, you know, not letting them get too thick uh, to the point where, you know, separation occurs under the callus. People would try a whole variety of things to soak your fingers in and so forth. And I'm I'm not aware of any kind of uh, uh, evidence-based information that would say that, you know, one uh, sort of uh, soak is better than another, but I think it is, you know, a significant problem, and he he certainly needs to have not only his trainers, but perhaps most uh, major league teams now have dermatologists that come and do annual skin cancer screenings at their uh, stadiums, and you know those dermatologists, I'm sure, would be more than happy to at least help out or offer another set of eyes and opinions about whether there's anything uh, that could be contributed Mm -hmm. to the medical team that's already, I'm sure, working very hard to make sure that that Rich's uh, blisters are managed the best way they can be. So pitchers present a particular challenge because not only do they have all that friction, it's all you know very fine control with with what you do with your hand when you're throwing a baseball, but you're also not allowed to have anything on your hand on the mound, and that even goes so far as to like a bandage, like we saw with Trevor Bauer last off season, where his he couldn't have a band aid on his on his throwing hand, so he's just bleeding openly on the mound. So what you know, what challenges does that present in terms of, of treating a, a blister or another skin condition in a pitcher? Well, you know, I think it really is uh, an issue because, I mean, we would normally do things to reduce friction, things like Vaseline or, you know, something, an emollient that would moisturize. But as you correctly point out, that's not something that they're going to allow a pitcher to have on Uh, his hands when he's out there. Uh, But, you know, again, a team, including dermatology, we a lot of times have people doing kind of Vaseline moisturizing treatments or a variety of, you know, if he's got a dermatitis or something like that, treating that, you know, at night uh, before you come to the ballpark or under some cotton gloves or something like that. It really depends on what it looks like. And so, you know, that's why I say uh, having a dermatologist that's interested in the team, take a look and see if there's anything more that can be added. Because sometimes, you know, there will be things like a dermatitis problem or something else that can be managed uh, more effectively than it is uh, because it's not something that the trainer might know how to treat and that sort of thing. So I, I think it's it's worth having an opinion from uh, from a dermatologist to just see if there's anything additional that might need to be managed. I don't know whether from your experience, you know, whether certain types of pitches would make someone more susceptible to blisters. Of course, Hill throws a ton of curveballs and he gets great spin on his pitches uh, among the, the highest spin rate in baseball, which seems to be at the root of his success that he has this really great breaking ball and that he is able to impart such spin to it. But maybe that's sort of a, it's an Icarus kind of situation where it works so well, but in working so well, it it leaves him susceptible to greater risk than the typical pitcher. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's one particular pitch that would create more susceptibility. Uh, you know, it would depend on where the pressure is applied on that particular pitch. But, you know, certainly somebody throwing a, a fastball could generate a lot of friction on their fingertips as well. But, you know, it makes perfect sense if that's his best pitch, that that may be one of the places that gets more friction as a result of that pitch, uh, maybe the 
uh, the thing that's causing him problems. So I wanted to ask one more, just because you've been doing this for so long from the seventies to now, how is the the state of the art advanced? Like, you know, we, we know a lot about surgical techniques, but just in terms of an athlete taking care of his body in a day-to-day sense, you know, how has that advanced over the past 40 years or so? Well, you know, the thing that impressed me was when my son was playing as a former player myself, you know, I got to be around you know, the teams that my son John was playing for, the, you know, the Blue Jays and the Mets and the Mariners and subsequently the Yankees and the Red Sox. And so the thing that impressed me the most about the difference from my era to his era was how seriously these guys took uh, their physical conditioning. You know, we were sort of taught that lifting weights would make you muscle bound and you shouldn't do it. You know, you should just you know, do sports specific activities and things like that. And now, I mean, it, there's an entire winter programs and, and even during the season programs for maintenance of strength and uh, and weightlifting. But the other thing was just how how good these guys were about not abusing their bodies the way we hear some of the, you know, some of the old timers who used to kind of make it a point of pride how much uh, alcohol they'd consumed the night before having four home runs or something like that. And so it's, you know, I I thought that the players in John's era uh, took it much more seriously and really did everything they could to be as good as they could be. And, uh, And maybe even, you know, with my era, it wasn't quite as much emphasis on being a top medical condition for every single game. And people, I think, sometimes would take uh, things to pep them up or pills to pep them up, you know, after they'd been riding a bus all night or something like that. And and that couldn't be too good for you in the long term uh, either. And lastly, you mentioned the skin cancer screenings. And I know that Major League Baseball has made an effort to raise awareness of that danger and have people in baseball protect themselves. Was there awareness of that when you were playing in the 60s? Were players thinking about sunscreen? Was this on anyone's radar at the time? Not at all. In fact, I mean, everybody would be laying out uh, by the pool and, you know, getting additional sun and how tan they were was sort of a badge of honor rather than paying attention to protecting your skin from skin cancers. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, people who work in baseball and not just the players, but, you know, the scouts and uh, and the front office people as well, they really are in a in a job where they get excessive amounts of ultraviolet radiation, and it's a little bit like smoking. There's at, there's no safe dose. Everybody, you know, has some additional risk as a result of the increased sun exposure. So we really try to coach people to, you know, use sunscreens, use protective. Uh, hats and baseball hats are not very protective of things like your ears and so forth. So, you know, really sunscreen is uh, the best sort of protection as far as having your skin look good years later for beauty treatments. And there's nothing better than sunscreen in their youth. And so, you know, I think getting that word out is uh, is important. So I, th- I think that's kind of the message that I would give is that Uh, Baseball players play in a a sport where they are increasing their risk of skin cancers down the line. And other people that work in baseball, uh, that's also true. So sun protection is really a huge issue for people that are in that business. Mm -hmm. 
All right. Well, we have heard from John Olrud, or I guess I should say Doc Olrud, which is not the most creative nickname I've ever heard, but accurate. <laughs> so, <Yeah>. okay. <laughs> thank you, John. Well, thank you very much, Ben. I appreciate it. Okay. So let's welcome in our second dermatologist. So we are joined now by Charles Crutchfield, a Minnesota area dermatologist. And Dr. Crutchfield, we know that you have served as the team dermatologist for just about every major sports team in the area. And <laughs> we are curious about what that entails exactly. So what does a, a team dermatologist do in baseball and how does that differ from other sports? Well, I tell you, it doesn't differ a lot from, from just regular uh dermatology, but we take care of all the, the skin issues and skin concerns of the players. And also we care for the coaches and uh, other staff and even family members. So the, the nice thing about dermatology is everybody has skin. Everybody has skin issues and skin challenges. It can be anything from a sunburn to a changing mold to a rash, you name it. If it's a skin problem, we take care of it. Mm -hmm. So does that take the form of regular screenings more so than being called in to deal with a, a specific issue that crops up during a season, or can it be either? You know, usually, for example, when we're working with the Minnesota Twins, we do an annual screening of all the players and staff and family members. We, we do that as a service. But one of the things they, they combined with the American Academy of Dermatology, because baseball is a sport that you spend a lot of time outdoors. Growing up as a kid, there's lots of sun exposure, and it can set you up for a lot of skin challenges as you get older. So we're trying to educate the young players. It's important to be sun smart and sun protect, wear sunscreens, uh, wear protective clothing, things like that. So we do that as a service to the players, but you name it, anytime any of the players or staff has a problem with their skin, we either come down and see them at the stadium or the ballpark, or we'll make arrangements for them to come to our office and see them and evaluate it. So are, I know you said, you know, everybody's got skin and it's all, all the same, but, you know, are there some things that you find yourself treating more with certain athletes? Like we just uh, talked to Chipper Jones and there was a bit in his book about how he used to wear three pairs of, of sliding shorts to prevent from getting raspberries on the bases. Like I imagine with football, there's turf burn, stuff like that. Absolutely. And so that's one of the real common things with the aggressive base runners. We see lots of strawberries. And so you want to use things to prevent it, either with extra layers of clothing, but also when it does happen, you want to use different uh, treatments to make it heal better and feel better when they're playing. So that's another common thing. But so there's other things like athlete's foot. We also see uh, jock itch, tinea cruris, which is a fungal infection, lots of sunburn, people have changing moles, strawberries. Yeah, those are real common things that we see in sports. And what about blisters? Because that's what we were initially interested in. We keep reading about Rich Hill and his ongoing issues with blisters. Right. And we're wondering what preventative measures a team can take. And when a player has a recurring issue like this, what sorts of therapies might be attempted? Well, there are a couple things. The pathophysiology of a blister is really from aggressive friction on an area. And we have different proteins in our skin that hold the skin layers together. With lots of shearing forces and traumatic pressure, those proteins fracture and the skin can separate. When the skin separates, it gets filled up with natural plasma fluids that's in our body and you get a blister. That's why you get kind of a watery blister. So it's very, very challenging. And I can't speak about any specific pitchers due to HIPAA regulations, but I can talk in general about approaches to treating uh, blisters in athletes and pitchers and things like that. The hands are really tough because that's how you throw and that's how you grip the baseball. So either you have to look at a slightly different grip or something to take the pressure off. Shoes uh, on blisters on the feet is a lot different in athletes. You can uh, use different inserts. You can use tightening of the shoes, but it's from the skin slipping around in the shoe causing that shearing force. But on the hands too, 
part of it's the tincture of time. Once you get a blister, your body can only heal so fast. You can't make your body heal faster. And you also want to drain the blister so it's not, it's not uncomfortable. You lose some things that are helpful. There's a product called Mole Skin. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that. It's kind of like a felt, but it takes the pressure off the blister area. So you put it around the blister a couple layers, and that takes the pressure off so you're not creating that friction there. Now, depending on what league you're in and what level, sometimes you can use it, sometimes you can't. They, you know, you remember the, the picture the pitcher dripping on the, on the mound, bleeding uh, in the World Series last year mm-hmm. or in the playoffs, mm-hmm. because you can't put any bandages or wraps if you're a pitcher. That's illegal. So there also there's a thing called second skin. It's a hydrocolloid dressing, and it will cause things to heal at a maximal rate. So a lot of times when you have a blister, you can use a special treatment to make it heal and fast. But the key is to relieve the pressure, and so you've got to get a slightly different pitch uh, grip for the pitcher so they don't put pressure on that spot. But it's, it's a real problem in baseball. Some pitchers will develop calluses in those areas over time so they don't get blisters, and so it's a process called hardening. So one of the confusing things about this, and, you know, this is something that baseball players get mocked for, like you're not tough enough to play through a blister, but like even as somebody who covers the game, it's still a little confusing to me, like how this is something that that puts a pitcher on, on the DL. Like I could see that it getting painful to grip the baseball and then you, why does it take more than more than one missed start to, to treat a blister? Well, if you look at how long it takes skin to heal, if you, if you shear your skin off, there's a process called re-epithelialization. The skin will grow in and cover itself, but it takes about 7 to 14 days. On average, it's about 10 days. So, blister, I mean, you get a blister on the finger, and every time you throw it, you're aggravating because you're putting pressure in that area. It's like stripping the skin off your fingertips. It's unbelievably painful, and it hurts with every pitch. So you have to let it heal in and re-epithelialize. That's why it takes 10 days, and they're pitching every 4 to 5. That's why it's usually a couple starts. Yeah, I've seen that on Game of Thrones. It didn't look fun. So is there anything that, I mean, if a pitcher has this ongoing issue for such a long time, spanning seasons as Hill has, and again, not speaking specifically about him, but mm-hmm. if it keeps happening and happening, is it something that you just have to accept? There's no real permanent solution for this possibly, and maybe we just have to handle him differently. Maybe he can't start as often. Maybe he can't go as deep into games, or is there always some sort of permanent solution in your opinion? Yeah, no, I think there's always something you can do. I would never give up. But one of the things, main cause is friction and trauma and anything you can do to decrease that, be it, like you said, don't pitch as deep, don't pitch as often. Sometimes, like I said, the area will develop its own callus. It'll harden and you get away from it. Or you have to slightly change the grip so that part of the finger is not always pushing on the ball. That's also really helpful. I've had, there, there have been some really mm, kind of exotic treatments where you can actually nick the blister and introduce just a small amount of super glue and hold the skin down, and that'll put it. That'll make it tight. And sometimes over time, it will harden. That's not a real common thing, but there are many things you can try, and that's certainly some things they've tried in the past. So, is there a specific part of the baseball that that causes blisters? Like, is it a place where, like, when the pitcher's throwing a curveball, the seam sort of rubs against it, or can this happen with any grip and any pitch? It can happen with any grip and any pitch, but it's really, like I said, the shearing force. Now, once again, the seams are raised. A lot of times you'll get more pressure if you, if you throw across those. But even the soft or the smooth part of the ball, the leather part, that if there's enough pressure on the finger and as it comes across when you're throwing, if there's enough shearing force on it, that can cause a blister. The, the seams are most notably the most common, but you can get any part of the baseball that can 
can cause a blister. It's really, it's the mechanics of the throwing, the pitching, not necessarily the ball itself. The desire to lessen the friction, to reduce the inflammation or, you know, reduce the chance of having a blister sort of seems at odds with all the things that we see pitchers do, whether it's rosin or whether it's the the make-it-yourself, stick them with the sunscreen and the, the rosin bag right, and, right. and water. They're trying to get a better grip on the ball, but I imagine that that might Im- inflame a blister. It's just like the three bears, a little story. Not too hot, not too cold, but just mm-hmm. right. I mean, you, you want to get a good grip, but not so much where you're, you're causing the skin to shear off. Well, you can understand why they pulled him from a perfect game last year, because maybe that's what it takes to... Yeah, right. Uh, So have you seen any unusual cases in your time treating athletes or things that you wouldn't necessarily think of as as a dermatology concern for an athlete like i'm thinking of a a couple of years ago justin turner had a MRSA infection and it was you know serious when that sort of thing happens it can be career threatening so yeah it can be if you use the wrong medication yeah. well you know i'm also the um the dermatologist for the minnesota wild hockey team and it, mm-hmm. it's a well-known fact that the the mumps have gone crazy through mm-hmm. uh through the hockey, the NHL over the last couple of years, and it keeps rearing its ugly head and disappearing. So a lot of times you can make the diagnosis on that, but that's more getting the team immunized. I'll tell you one of the, the more interesting things that we've done for players, and it has to do with Botox injections. Hmm. And we've had a lot of athletes that get chronic migraines, and so Botox injections are great for migraine treatment. So we treated many athletes and, and done a great job clearing up or at least temporarily leaving their migraines with Botox injections. And I'll tell you another thing that's really fascinating. We do this for a lot of athletes. We do Botox around their eyes, and there's a thing called... Uh, blepharospasm is where your eyes kind of twitch. We've all had it. And when it happens to you, when you look at the world, it looks like there's an earthquake. If people look at you and your eyes are twitching, they can hardly tell. But to you, it's crazy. Well, imagine being a professional athlete. You have to, you know, your eye-hand-eye coordination is there. Or even yet, uh, worse, if you're a batter, standing mm-hmm. in the batter box, and here's, here's a ball coming at you 90 miles or 95 miles an hour plus at your head, and your eyes are twitching. It's just absolutely terrifying. So we've actually, I've done many, many players. You can delicately inject the muscles around the eyes, which is minute quantities of Botox to keep them from spasming. And uh, players have been really, really happy with those results. So that's kind of something interesting that we do a lot of. All right. Well, we appreciate your time. You can read more about all of this at Dr. Crutchfield's website, crutchfielddermatology.com. And thank you. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right, that is it for today. You probably didn't even know you wanted one dermatologist. Instead, you got a double dose of dermatologists. We've got a couple good guests lined up for our next episode on Monday, and we will talk to you then. 